You're listening to On the Couch with Carly. Carly's Couch is a safe space to talk. I'm a psychologist, but I'm not your pipe-smoking, tweed-wearing stereotype. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On the Couch with Carly. Today, I have a very exciting guest with me. I have Mayuri Govender from Breaking Brown Silence. And for those of you who don't know her and her account on Instagram, Mayuri has been inspiring me for months as I have been on my own anti-racist journey and um, her posts have been the most informative and um, groundbreaking that I've experienced in the South African context. She really is up there for me with the Rachel Cargles of the world. So welcome, Mayuri. How are you? Ah, uh, thanks for having me, Carly. That's such a cool introduction. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you are so welcome. Um, so Mayuri and I just spent a really interesting few Saturdays together because I took part in one of Mayuri's um, workshops, uh, webinars that she does with her new consulting company, which is, I'm, I want to hear all about it, Mayuri. What I'm really excited about talking to you today is that I have been sort of on my on my journey, um, on my anti-racist journey myself. And I, I, I actually sort of made a confession in, in the last podcast that I recorded because I spent an, like half an hour recording a podcast that I now have to basically binned because I felt so uncomfortable with it. And since then, I have realized that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of aware of my own kind of limitations in, in, in talking about and taking up space in the, in the anti-racist field you know like it's I just feel like I, I don't like I don't have to I don't really know what I'm talking about and I need to sit down and shut up that's kind of the feeling I'm getting giving myself at the moment so I'm really happy to have you here to take up space and 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 be loud and proud and tell me all about where you're at so can we start with like what is anti-racist work and yeah what is your day-to-day -day life doing this work look like well the day-to-day -day of being an anti-racism educator and I would say more of an advocate now than I am an activist. I used to be more of an activist. Um, it's, it's kind of new. This this full-time um, work is, is kind of new to me um, because I was juggling before. But now it's very much thinking a lot, introspecting, uh, looking at current affairs and what's sort of happening in the world and what what's relevant to be spoken about right now. So my days are very much um, juggling the consultancy business that I've just launched, BBS Consulting, um, and um, appointments through there and that. But on top of that, it's a lot of writing and research, um, which I was already doing in my spare time. But now um, it's, a, it's, being, it's being able to take it to an entirely new level. Like it's, it's entirely, what's the word? It's um, it's all-encompassing. It's now giving it the full energy I think that it needs, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, like yeah. It, it's a reading and research. It's a lot of reading and research. Yeah, and I think that that really, you can tell, I mean, just from being on your Instagram, like it does feel like every post and even just your sort of personal um thoughts that you put on your story sometimes, you know, are, are informed by so much that I think you immersed in and understand that. And, and in a way, I guess, I know this has been a critique of the anti-racist movement or, and of like um, Black Lives Matter, that it can be a bit um, academic or it can be a bit um, like it, you know, intellectual in a way, like, like there's there can be a bit of a divide in terms of who thinks about these things and who's um, able to even access this because it's of the the language used or whatever. So I can also do this sometimes, like get lost in the jargon or um, 
you know, and yes. I think if also if you're very well researched, if you if you yourself mm. are immersed in the in the literature and you are um fluent in a way in 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 discussions and 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 discourse around around these concepts, it it can sometimes feel like it's a bit far away for the average person to sort of jump in and work out, okay, well, how does this affect me? What is this about? What, what how how should my life change in, in terms of learning this or unlearning what I know? So in the in a clear kind of like elevator pitch slash explain to your grandmother kind of way, like how how do you explain what anti-racism is and why people should do it? Why people should do anti-racist work? Well I think that um the first thing I would want people to like understand about anti-racism work is that it it shouldn't feel daunting. And I think that's what I try to purport. It's in a, in the inverse of it being a very academic space and a very um, jargon heavy space. I, and I'm sure you sometimes see this in my own um, posts and that, um, but for me, it's about breaking down that jargon and making it easily accessible, um, making it easy to understand. But like, and and that is the thing I want people to take away from the movement that it it can be everyone's movement and it can be everyone's um, mindset shift and um, communication with families can become easier through it um, if you understand the terminology behind it, because it can feel very um, daunting to people, but I really want to try and break down that barrier, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love that. That's exactly why I'm having you on, because I I want that to, to come across. Like, let's, let's say this plainly, like, what is this about? What is it really about? Well, anti-racism work is, is, is taking um, our identities as human beings and um, understanding that we have like an action-based responsibility towards each other in a humanity perspective, in my opinion. So any person who hears about anti-racist work, it's really about um, introspecting on your mindset, your biases, and all of the things that you, you know, the word racism and anything associated with that word can be like um, an immediate put off for people. And the thing about anti-racism work is it is it is deeply based in decolonized language. So in order to um, uh, embrace it in your life, you kind of have to be less afraid of the words, right? And knowing that like we are all born, we all have biases, we're all born with them, we're all born in different environments, and they develop, we can develop prejudices from them. And racism is, is part of that prejudice, right? So it's important that when people take on anti-racist work or want to know more about it, they realize that it's it's just a it's just a part of evolving your mind as you would with any sort of um current affair or or, or conversation politically or otherwise, in your life. Um, yeah, I think that's that's what it is, really. Like, people should be able to uh, look at it from an identity point, point of view and then see where our shortcomings are as a society. And as a society, if we then um, look at where the shortcomings are in socioeconomic privilege, white privilege... Um, gender privilege, we look at all of those things and then apply them to our structures and our systems, which are sometimes used so, th those words are used so loosely these days. Um, but it's, it's about looking at the structures and seeing who embodies those structures, what color they are, whether it's been like that forever, whether the structures are willing to change and how you operate within them. And everyone operates within them. Very complicated. Yeah, I love that. Right. No, I love that. I love that answer. Thank you. That's, you know, what comes up for me around that is I love the, the idea that it's about introspection and thinking about your own identity within the greater kind of society. 
because it, you know, when I think about my work that I do, you know, it's, it is a lot about introspection and about kind of connecting with your identity and also with understanding your place in the world. And all of us want to understand, you know, and, and so what happens if once you've got some further understanding, you actually start to see that there's, that you, that you are part of a system and that the system is unjust you know and i think for sure for me for me what 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 drives my motivation to to do this work is that i can't live with it you know it's like once i've mm. established that that sense of of you know it being unjust and that i'm part of it i like I, it's like I, I feel it's like cognitive dissonance right you like you feel uncomfortable i i can't i can't stay here i've got to do something and i and i and i guess that's what's quite exciting about anti-racist work is it feels like there is this opportunity to do something. There's action that one's that one can take. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. and it's completely action based. And I mean, um, centering a podcast around it is an action. It's a movement mm. in already operating within an anti-racist um, movement by doing something to amplify the idea ideology, right? And and not just the ideology, but um, the feelings and and motivations behind that ideology, which is. Um, systemic and structural racism. And the only way we can do that is through action. And I know I spoke about this in our webinar this past weekend, but um, talking is an action. And it's the first action, in my opinion, about um, with familiarizing yourself with um, not just the terminologies, but the lived experiences of what um, Black and brown communities are going through. It's about um, sort of immersing yourself in the lived experiences of people who are different from you, beyond just race even. Like if we think about um, Black trans people, um, Black non-binary people, brown non-binary people, like it's it's about immersing yourself in the worlds of others and then taking action to amplify that so that the structures can bring more equity as opposed to it simply being about equality on paper. That's a lovely segue to have those two definitions um, provided. Please tell me and my listeners, what is the difference between equality and equity? Okay, so the difference between equality and equity is that although they both promote fairness, it's about the treatment and it's about the difference in um, opportunity, right? So equality is about treating everyone the same regardless of their needs. So our constitution um, protects all of us in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that means that we're all equal, but all of our needs are different. And that will bring in our socioeconomic status, our backgrounds, our access, our historical access, spatial apartheid and how that's affected us, things like that. And it, it doesn't, put us on the same playing field. So although we're equal on paper, equity is there to amplify people who have been not necessarily, not just historically disadvantaged, but currently marginalized and disadvantaged so that they can be equal and their needs are met in the same way. Mm, okay, got you. Yeah, so it's kind of like that experiment they do with college students when they... When they yes when they put them all in a line and then they say, okay, if your, if your parents owned their house, step, take one step forward. And if your, if your parents paid for your college tuition, take one step forward. And then, and then you kind of eventually see how there's these disparities and in what people kind of start out with. And so, yes, you can all start the race at the same time, but some people are going to be advantaged and that's your privilege. And equity would be to try and even it out so that the people who are already disadvantaged move up more move so forward that, so that or have move, an, move forward or have an opportunity mm. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so like BEE affirmative action those sort of things yeah so I mean our system at the moment makes um provision for our employment equity right um but unfortunately I think that what's happened is that while we are implementing BEE we're not doing the true work behind BEE. Um, the sense of it's okay to amplify and diversify, that's the word, 
diversify workforces, companies, um, corporate structures. It's fine to diversify, but diversity can simply be a metric. And the the reason racism still exists in those structures, um, yes, those policies are there to bring equity to people, but they don't often, as much as they bring equity, um, sometimes from a financial point of view, it doesn't bring equality then when they reach that space in the sense, in the space of race sometimes, because cultures, institutional cultures haven't changed. And that's why diversity work can't be done without inclusion work, equity work, and equality work. And right. um, they all they have to all work together in that sense because a metric is not a true measurement of the treatment of people, which is what equity is really about. It's not just about the, the metric. Yeah, while you were talking, I was just thinking about how I imagine like any of this to work. And I'm reminded of one of the core tenets that you brought up on on Saturday. And and that is this idea that, you know, to have empathy (laughs) is quite a prerequisite for this. And it's quite a thing. If you, if you think about that, that example of, of those college students and, and let's say, for example, the, the, the one white kid is right at the front, you know, he's, he's got the biggest advantage and he looks back and behind him are um, black and brown kids, Asian kids, Native American kids, whatever it may be, and, pro- and probably some white kids as well, poor, poorer white kids or kids that have got immigrant families or whatever, you know, there's that hierarchy that kind of exists. Yeah. And, and, and what, is it, what does it take for someone to look behind them and realize they're closest to the finish line? They could get there fastest. They've got all these advantages and yet they are now i mean anti racist work i i i i feel requires you to to stop to pause to stop rushing to get ahead and to turn back and look at your fellow man you know your fellow citizen and say okay but what can i do to to bring you closer to me you know what can i do to 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 leverage what what i've got here to get you closer to to the finish line and and it, and i imagine that that that's that takes quite a lot of empathy. It takes quite a lot of um, community-mindedness in a way. And I, and I, yeah, I wonder about that. Do you do you see people according? Like, do you find it difficult to teach this to people who struggle with empathy, or do you do you do you sort of see when you when you do this sort of work? Do you do you kind of see it showing up where there's like just certain people that are just never going to get it because they don't want to think about other people or they can't think about other people. I don't even know Absolutely. if you know what Absolutely. I'm asking. But <laughs> I completely know what you're asking. I think... Okay, good. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Um, empathy, I'm, I'm actually struggling a little with, with whether it actually can be taught. Um, I, I'm really struggling with that. And I, I say that from my experience working in the school racism space. So... Prior to launching this consultancy, um, I was part of the anti-racism in private schools movement. Um, And, you know, these are like really old colonial structures that have been around for like as long as Indian South Africans have been here (laughs) or longer, (laughs) you know. So these schools are, are like 160, 170 years old already. And they keep falling back on um, the fact that they, a lot of them, because they were independent schools, for example, like this is just an example, but um, the fact that in the late 80s or early 90s, they started including people of color in their schools. And that to them is like a moment to celebrate, right? But when you talk to them about the culture that's being perpetuated and they're having to look back and go like, okay, there's a lot of kids who are different here, Regardless of, I mean, I know in this in in the private school space, socioeconomic privilege and financial privilege is is a different kind of playing field there. But there's also the the fact that um, you're going to get scholarship children, and you're also going to get children whose parents uh, their first generation coming going to a private school. Um, you know, there's there are layers. There's still layers there. There's still hierarchies there. And when you when you out to people that, you know, the structure is allowing 
um, bias and racism to thrive, not just within students, but with teachers, you get a lot of pushback, a lot of defensiveness. And you try to, t- you try to explain your feelings to these structures when you're engaging with them sometimes. And they simply do not get it. So I don't actually know if empathy can be taught. I'm really at that point where I'm really starting to wonder, because in my personal, in the work that I do with the consultancy, I don't often find people who are coming for help who don't already have that, that have an empathetic streak within them or a compassionate streak, where they want to do to know more, where they're already curious, where they're already listening and, and going, oh, okay, I want to know a little bit more. I don't actually often encounter clients who know nothing. But I have in, in the school space where this feels sometimes like a PR stunt um, that, you know, people just want to get it right for the cameras or for the press or for their image or for their reputation. And in those situations, you, I don't think that you can, you can do it because the fragility is there. That's why anti-racism work is so deeply rooted in introspection and personal work and, and looking at your and how you have benefited because nobody's going to be able to look back and see the various steps that's taken back. I mean, if we just leave alone um, all of the various access-based things, we can go even a step further and go like, did you have two parents raising you? You know, like there really goes down to like the nitty gritty of it. And some people just don't, I don't know that you can, you can build it in someone because as much as you can like, tell them what you're feeling and what the lived experiences are. Sometimes people just don't want to accept that. Exactly. And especially if what you're saying with you, you know, what you're, what they're having to accept will entail them having to lose something that they've, that they, that they're holding on to, right? Some, some idea of themselves or of the way the world works or of, their value or, um, you know, their inherent goodness that I think, I mean, that's the whole concept of, that's, that's why I think we get it so wrong and why, why we're so fragile is that we think that, you know, if we admit these things, then somehow we're, we're not good. We're not, we, you know, we have to sort of, it's one or the other. And, and I, I actually, I can't remember who it was. It's, I've been racking my brains, but I can't remember who it was, but some, someone last week, or maybe it was um, on the news. I heard someone in the government in a government department was accused of racism, and I can't remember who it was. But um, I remember thinking when I heard it, like, why would anyone deny being accused of racism in this day and age? Like, I feel like I'm I'm at the point of my journey where if someone accused me of racism, I would be like, I would literally go on air and say <laughs> yes, I am racist. We are all racist. We live in a racist world. We have you know, imbued this racism from the air we breathe. It is in our society. Let's face the fact that we're racist and and start the work, you know. But I think we're, we're still so afraid to even just admit that there's racism in us, you know, to even admit that maybe we, but, but it's but it's obvious to me that we're going to kind of, it's going to, it's going to come out, right? It's going to, yeah. And so I think that's, that's a good pl- place for you actually to just maybe give another definition is how, how do you how do you understand white fragility or fragility in these spaces like what what does that really mean what I wanted to say to you while you were speaking I had a thought about it and it, it is a good segue into talking about white fragility is it's all ego driven actually mm-hmm. well, it's very it's, it's a very um human um aspect we all have an ego um part of it but so much of this journey is based in like human psychology. So much of it is based in um, behavior studies and environmental studies and the human experience, the social experience, right? And I feel like white fragility as a definition is, is really centering the feelings of white people based on the ego of white people, really. Mm. Challenging something that's so normalized that, that the white is right thing, you know. Um, once you challenge that, it's it's sort of like a how can you challenge my existence? How can you challenge what is right? What is norm? What is 
what our society has been based upon, you know? And it's really, for me, that's exactly what it's based in. It's based in in the fragility of the ego. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that, you know, in my work, that's something I deal with all the time. I mean, that's a lot of what therapy is about is kind of navigating that, I mean, you know, navigating the defense mechanisms and try to work out why they show up and 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 you know the the rule of thumb when you're dealing with in in a in a therapeutic context is you you never analyze the defense you analyze the anxiety like you you never leave people without their defenses unless you can hold space for their anxiety and so I I always try and go to that point like but why are you protecting this why are you guarding this why is this why do you need to because when I, when I see people get aggressive or if I see them needing to get bigger and show that they're powerful, which is often what happens with fragility, it looks it actually often looks like aggression. Um, mm. And I always think to myself, like, you're on the attack, but but really you're on the defensive. Why why do you need to attack right now? Why do you feel so unsafe? What is threatening you? And I think if if and that's kind of what my my most recent episode was about was like trying to just at least start with connecting in yourself why why you get defensive why you feel like you're under threat and what that's about what is that telling you about what's what you're protecting what i think it is is that um the black and brown people in the anti-racism movement are requiring white people to self-soothe and for an everyday individual who's like attacked in a personal way, right? It's already hard sometimes to self-soothe. When when it's something to do with what you base yourself on, which is like your outside appearance and what you're made of, it can be exceedingly challenging. But we're basically saying like, it's not up to us to tell you how to deal with your feelings um, based on... Um, how history and the system protects you. And I think that can be like really jarring for any human to um, sort of confront. Um, And this time around, we're asking you to confront it with yourself and with your peers as opposed to um, burdening us with it. Because because that, that is where the prejudicial harmfulness exists in the real world. It's it's Sharon Osbourne telling a, a black woman on the talk this week, um, don't you dare cry, because if there's anyone who should be crying, it, it should be me. Yeah. Um, <gasps> that's that's exactly what she did, <laughs> by the way. Oh, my gosh. Um, when they were talking about Harry and Meghan, who sent the world into a spin. So, um, so uh, it's that, and it's it's kind of telling somebody to sit with something and not and not be violent in someone in the space of people who have already been harmed, um, and 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 it's asking someone to introspect by themselves, and not asking someone to for that for that ed- education for free, because that's been the experience of black and brown people generally, right? It's tell me why you're feeling this way. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that answered your question adequately. Um, but, but it's sort of such a beautiful. Thank you so much for saying that. I, I absolutely. If if you if you would see me now, you'd just see me like nodding, like I'm in church, <laughs> and I've never nodded in church as a non-church going <laughs> Jewish person. <laughs> um, but but yes, I love that word that that phrase self soothing. I think that is so important and 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 really what you're asking is a is is a is a maturity you know an emotional maturity that unfortunately mm. many people don't possess and I think when we're talking about race that you know that that white people are in particular infantile in their in their understandings of race because of how they've that's their privilege, right? Is that they've ne- is that you know, as, as white people, we've 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 gotten away with not having to learn about race because it hasn't affected our our lived experience the way it affects people of color. Yeah, you um, get to learn about it neutrally. That's mm. that's sort of how I see it. It's that there's a difference because when um, I walk through the world as a child, right? As a child, I was told by my parents, and sure, this was. 
I was I was starting school in the new South Africa, like in the new democracy. So I started grade one in 1994. But um, I was told, Mayuri, your your skin color is brown, and it's gonna your experience is going to be different. So I'm already I'm already walking into the world knowing that something that I would would maybe be treated differently. And so I'm not walking into the world in a, with a sense of neutrality, with a sense of a default setting. I'm already told I'm not the default setting, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and I feel like white children have the privilege of not being told that. I've, Absolutely. That goes into the convers- con- whole conversation of like representation and, you know, all of, all of that. But just if we talk about it from like a child perspective, like white children don't really need to be told that they need to be careful. Just as like, if you compare it, or can't even compare it, but if you speak about the the conversation that's been happening in the US a lot about how black children, specifically black male children who are growing up are told by specific at a specific age that um, they need to be careful if they are confronted by the cops. These, this is the checklist you need to go through. Like it's that, it's that priming that already makes us the non-default. Absolutely. And, and it's a kind of emotional resilience that you learn as well. Um, but it's a resilience that I feel we we have expected of you that I'm that I personally want to no longer expect. You, do you know if do you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's almost like when 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 clients come to me and they've survived so much, and what I really want is for them to sit in my in my room and be a mess. I want them to feel it all. I want them to come into contact with their vulnerability. I want them to feel absolutely almost um, the opposite of resilient, you know, totally, totally um, exposed. Uh, it, sounds, it sounds worse than it is, but I mean, I, it, it doesn't just start like that. It, you know, it gets to that point after you've built a relationship. But the point is because in those moments when you can feel that way, when you can let someone else hold hold space for you and and hold all of those emotions for you, then you're not holding on to it. And I think people who have spent their lives being resilient and 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 being, you know, coping with all of these if with all these feelings all the time. It's it's exhausting and it's draining and it's and it's using energy that could be spent on something else, right? And so that's kind of if I think about what like being an ally might look like, I I think okay, I'm a mental health provider or carer. If I can create a space where I'm helping regulate white people's feelings. Mm at the very least, you know, so that they can learn to self-regulate, so that they can become better at self-soothing, mm. so that they're not taking that to a person of color, so that they're even creating a safe space for a person of color to be able to express their feelings without it having anything more than that, you know, with, without it being a competition of whose feelings matter, without it being a need to explain those feelings, but for someone to just hear them, to listen, to say, it's okay, I I get it, I'm I'm here. Yeah, I think that is a really... Um, what's the word? A pertinent way to dismantle ego and teach people to self-soothe, and it may breed empathy. Maybe that is maybe that you're I mean, you're the professional here in that respect. <laughs> but maybe that, but maybe that is maybe that is how it happens. Because I can tell you, it is really debilitating as a person of color and as a woman of color too. Um, when you know you you're not getting through to someone. And it re- what you said really resonated with me in terms of like a mental health perspective in that, in the sense of, um, and of course, every person of color deals with their, their racial trauma differently. Um, and I mean, some children are overtly told that they may be treated differently like I was, and some children may not, and then have to learn it later and then speak to their families about it or whatever. And some people internalize it and some people externalize it. And, you know, there's various ways that people deal with these things. But if I have to think about myself, that resilience for sure is a thing that's really hard um, to dismantle in the world because you're so used to living with a bit of your guards up and um, mm. like fighting spirit almost. That for me, mm. going to therapy, like learning to be vulnerable, learning to live in my feelings a bit and stuff, it's a very scary space, right? Mm. It's taken a lot of like 
emotional dismantling and dealing with traumas I didn't know I even had. And I can, I'm probably, I'm probably certain this is from speaking to peers and friends. Um, they've, it, it's sometimes been quite similar for them. And it, it makes sense what you're saying about like moving through a world where like you have to be resilient um, because it is, there's this added layer of like super exhaustion, <laughs> um, mm. just an average work day that you don't, that most of us don't even talk about anymore. Like if I have to th- think about an average work day, like there is at least one person speaking to me about curry. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. Like, no, and it sounds ridiculous, but it's so real. It's so real. Like there will be someone who raises it somehow or something to do with like stereotypical biased Indianness that comes up. And like I've I've become so accustomed to hearing it like that now I I'm just like oh sigh I'm over it and move on with my day but then I'm not talking about it later but it has actually impacted me in some way you know yes it's this exactly added exhaustion much like you said exactly oh and then I mean on top of that you're putting yourself out there and doing this work and you know. I know you through Instagram and I know that you are, are very visible on Instagram. You know, you post a lot, you share a lot, you're very, you're very vulnerable on Instagram. But that also comes with, uh, you know, as I said, the risk of exposure. And on Instagram, it's not like in your therapist's office where it's a safe mm. space. There are not so safe people out there. So tell me, what, what, has, what has that been like for you, being out in that kind of public forum, doing this work, has has it been difficult at times? Absolutely. Um, it's actually why at first I didn't want to put my my face on the profile and why I just wanted it to be purely educational. Um, and I felt like that that could have been like a way for me to protect the space. Um, in fact, I do still have little um, things like with comments and things like you can't comment on my posts unless you're a follower, you know, like, a, and I will, I've, I've taken measures, you know, but it doesn't mean that it stopped um, people from invading the space. And mm. for that sometimes it is your, your actual following sometimes that can be a little bit harmful without them, sometimes without them knowing. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really, it actually is really terrifying when it happens, to be honest, it makes me personally want to retreat. It makes me want to stop what I'm doing. I feel incredibly traumatized because it feels very violent. It's almost as if people forget that there's a human behind the profile. And I feel like that's that's the case in general sometimes with Instagram, which is why people get a bit out of control and we have trolls. And But in the racial space, when... When somebody comes for you in your DMs, um, sort of attacking you on your pers- uh, on a personal level, and they might do a little like stalk of your personal profile or something, and then they and then they they really attack you. It honestly is it's it's terrifying, and it makes you feel scared. Not just like in an online space where you can just like. Um, dismiss it or go like, okay, I'm going to block this person. For me personally, and I don't know if other people feel this way, but for me personally, as a woman as well, um, it it I fe- I fear for my like self. I fear that somebody is going to find me, you know, and like really. Mm. Att- I know the things that I talk about um, are confrontational, um, and they are they. I I don't I don't hold back from the explanation of things, even if even. The perception of my tone is a completely different thing. Like that's not up to me, and that comes up to other people's biases in terms of like angry black women trope. But um, the content itself is disruptive. I understand that. But in that disruption, like, is it fair to like invade someone's space on a personal level? Like, this is a whole conversation I've been <laughs> dissecting with friends about yeah. um, internet etiquette and would we barge into someone's life in real life you know, and, and say the things we say online. But it, it can be really debilitating at times. It really can. Yeah, I can imagine. And that it's not, it's it, the hist- you know, it's the history of it as well, you know, that it's not an isolated incident. It comes with a whole, 
whole structure behind it, right? Especially if it's a white That's person inflicting that violence. Yes. You know, it's it's such a it's such a because, repeat. Because you know violation. how it feels in real life. That's the thing. Mm. Mm. Like for me personally, it's because you know how I know how it feels in real life, and I know what people can look like, and I know how angry can be, people can get to your face if you're out at a protest or you're arguing on or at an anti-racism movement meeting of some sort. Mm is the school sector or otherwise, like you can see what that aggression looks like in real life. So that fear feels very tangible. Yeah. I, the image that's coming to my mind is, you know, when there was those um, fees must fall protests and the white students formed like a barricade in front of mm. the black protesters so that the police wouldn't use excessive force. And it just, honestly, I feel like I would love to just create a, a barricade around you always so that this sort of thing doesn't happen to you. And I, and I, and I don't know how that's actually possible, but I want to invite you to, to show me or, or, you know, or show your followers maybe, I don't know, is this even helpful to show your followers where there's instances of violence that are, that are being committed to you so that we can in some way step in take you know take it up with that person i don't know if that would be helpful but what what would what do you think would be helpful for people who want to help protect the space that you have created i think any person who posts lived experiences or anything that's based in race and anti-racist work um it's open are anyone is open to that sort of violence um i saw it on a lot of posts that happened even with like um, last year with Black Lives Matter and, you know, in, infringements with like Paul's homemade ice cream last year and things. But um, I think that if it's public, like if it's a comment, knowing you have allies that don't need prompting, that can see something and step in immediately without being asked, that mm. for me is true allyship. It's being mm. able to... Um, or act and action without prompting. That that for me, that. even for me, like in life, like when you're dealing with racist environments, there's a movement, or there's been a lot of people online um, speaking to it in terms of like co-conspiratorship. Like that's what differentiates being an ally from somebody who's actioning something. They will be your co-conspirator. If it's happening in your DMs, like, honestly, like, who's going to know? All you're going to do, all, all I could possibly do is screenshot the DM and post mm -hmm. it on story, you know, and be like, this person's being violent. And do I really want to do that? Like, that's personally not me, but I know people who do do that. And then somebody knows to watch out for that person, you know? Yeah. But then that's also for me, like, it, it comes down to that bit of, like, cancel culture and, like, personal targeting, which I'm, doesn't really, like, um, and this is which this is a human rights violation. I've said this lots of times, like that's the only exception for cancel culture I personally hold. But um, mm. I want to do that, you know? I really would like people to just be blocked and blessed. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, I guess it also, that sort of makes me think about, like, is there a limit to this question of like calling out versus calling in? Like, so uh, we, I'm just a bit weary of going too over time, like we don't have that much mm. time left. But the idea of, you know, if someone's not getting it, that instead of calling them out and shaming them for for their kind of, I don't know, in, internalized racism or whatever, to rather call them in to see what can you understand more about what they're what they're thinking, you know, to, to really get them to explore their own inner worlds um, so that they can maybe come up with their own conclusions. But at which point do you kind of just stop calling people in? And, and I'm not talking about you personally, because if I, I mm. completely understand that if anyone attacks you, you don't have any, absolutely no reason to want to call those people in. I'm talking about someone like myself, who that's kind of where I'm at with my journey is that it's it's my responsibility to call in as many white people as I can um, mm. to take that burden off people of color. But so even for myself, like a, or you know, someone who's listening now, like at which point do you, give up on calling someone in and you actually just say, you just say to yourself, okay, no, this person is quote unquote a write-off. I just can't with them. I don't know. Do you mean it in the sense of like, instead of calling in, like opting into calling out? 
Just Either like that or just straight quits. up blocking. Yeah, just straight up blocking them or, um, you know, even going so far as to do... I mean, I wouldn't say so so much like cancel culture, although I have actually myself been um, guilty of like calling people out before that I think wasn't that wasn't that helpful. Um, but I do I, I I do sometimes think some people need maybe even like a restraining order or you know something mm. real mm. for them to see that this is unacceptable. But but just just in terms of like just like a debate with your with your elderly family member or something and you've had the same debate every time you see them and they just aren't getting it and you've tried to call them in as much as possible and try to explore with them and they just are stubbornly not getting it. When do you kind of give up? When do you say, actually, I'm, I need to move on. I need to find someone else to do to, to this with or something. For me, I think, it's, I think it's about like, yeah, sure, having that conversation until you're blue in the face. But if they're truly just not going to get it, like, it's about you putting up a boundary about what your value systems are and what you deem acceptable and what you, um, as a white person, uh, find personally offensive and not worthy of your personal company. And it's about showing someone um, what their actions demonstrate to you and then putting up a boundary going, look, I'm obviously not going to get through to you. I'm obviously... This is obviously falling on deaf ears. So do you, but know that I don't approve of it, first of all. And second of all, know that um, I will not accept this rhetoric in my company. Um, I when you Because everyone knows a person like that. Let's be real. <laughs> like, yeah. Every single person knows a person like that. And, and that goes beyond the racial space. Like that could be politics, that could be gender identity. It could be homophobia. It can be anything. So everyone knows a person like that where you can argue with them about something and they they, they flat out refuse based on ego um, or lack of respect, whatever, um, or racism and homophobia <laughs> um, um, yeah. who don't, simply just don't want to get it. And it's about put, you then putting up that boundary and going like, okay, cool. The next time you do this, you're actually infringing my personal boundary now. I love that. That is brilliant. Um, boundaries are my absolute best intervention. I it's I, I wish boundaries was my middle name, but I I don't think <laughs> I'm I can claim it just yet. But I am definitely I, I definitely like to preach boundaries, and and that also kind of brings me to the last question that I have for you, which is how do you take care of yourself? What are if if there's a person of color listening to this podcast and they have been feeling and resonating with what you've been speaking about in terms of um, the trauma you've experienced and the difficulties you have with with people um, violently interrupting your space, or the microaggressions you experience at work or wherever else, what what can you what advice do you have? How do you how do you manage that on a personal level? How do you, how do you take care of yourself? I've really been leaning into resting, and anyone who's been following me would probably see me on this new. I don't want to say new, but like. Um, radical self-love journey in the sense of I realized that my racial trauma um, can only be fought with me loving myself and not letting the structures get to me or the people get to me um, and surrounding myself with other women of color who um, can uplift me, if that makes sense. So in terms of taking care of myself, I very much lean into things that bring me joy, like drawing or painting and gardening and cooking, um, being outdoors, how much, however I can be, and literally resting. Because um, I truly believe that um, our ancestors as black and brown communities, like they have like carried things on their back for us to be able to be here and and voice whatever we need to voice, but that voicing is our is that our prerogative. Um, I'm really in that space right now, where my voice is going to be a luxury to people because I know how hard my ancestors have worked, like coming from an indentured laborer background um, and history, um, and now I have the luxury to rest if I feel like it. And it's really hard to dismantle that um, from a 
um, emotional level because we've been taught to grind so hard. Um, it's exceedingly hard for black and brown people to, to stop working and to stop moving um, and to stop taking on. It's, it's, very, it's very internalized and that imposter syndrome feeling is really real. Um, so I'd really encourage uh, black and brown people to lean into things they love, like fully, not as like an escape, but like as a, as a like almost a spiritual choice for themselves to like recenter, reground, um, and, and protect themselves from sometimes a world that doesn't really want to interact with their experiences. Mm, yeah. That is so beautiful. Preach. <laughs> I love that. You're amazing. Thank you so much for coming on here and talking to me today. I actually just feel like I want to book you for the next session. Like, when are we going to do another <laughs> session? So, um, everybody, if you love this conversation, please write to me and tell me what else do you want me to talk to Mayuri about? Let's get stuck in. Let's get even deeper into this. It's so, it's so thrilling and exciting to talk to, to you and to, think about how this resonates in, in my life and for the people that I work with. And oh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so, so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I hope it's really like fruitful and enlightening to your listeners. Absolutely. And I just want to say, having done workshops now with Mayuri, this, that really it is, the, it is money well spent. It is seriously affordable. And so please do look up her um, her new consulting business it is she's got amazing packages you can do individual um, seminars you can do group seminars you can bring her into your work um, I will I'll put all of this up when I do the the blog post that links to this podcast and so all of that can be linked to it and yeah you can get hold of her through her through her Instagram as well at breaking brown silence thank you so much and yeah I hope it's a restful <laughs> rest of your day. You too, Carly. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Cheers. Bye. This podcast is recorded at Edible Audio in Cape Town, South Africa. Edited by Edible Audio. Original music by Alex Smiley.